this is Robert Mitchell at High Tide in the Dream Time. I know I said I was cutting back on my podcast, and I am, and I'm doing a different kind of podcast because I got, when I said on the last one I wasn't doing any more podcasts, people were a little bummed. I got a lot of notes. It was very touching. Uh, so I'm going to do fun podcasts. This one's going to be a fun one. I call this one Esalen Stories. And I sort of had the really good fortune when I was in college. I think it was about 21. You guys, the summer I was 21. Uh, a friend of the family. I was interested in going into psychology. And the, a friend in the family who was a guy named Jack Hornfield, who was a meditation uh, teacher and still is. He I recently had a wonderful interaction with. He's a really lifetime uh, lifetime family friend. I was thinking about going to graduate school after the last year, and he suggested that I go and spend the summer at Esalen uh, in Big Sur. And for those who don't know what Esalen is, it is this sort of bastion of consciousness. Uh, it was it was founded in the early sixties. And by these, these, I think these brother, these friends, these two families uh, own the property or one of the families own the property. I'm not going to get the history right. Uh, and they decided, I think in the mid 60s to create this as like a place for people to do human potential workshops. So over the years, the most amazing people have been there. Alan Watts, Joseph Campbell. Uh, really anybody who's been anybody in the world of consciousness, you know, it's the place where when you arrive as a authority on something or as a teacher on something, that's where you want to be. And what you end up doing is you go and you teach a workshop for a weekend or for a week. Terrence McKenna was someone who was there when I was there, you know, like Deepak Chopra would teach there. Really anybody who, who, has written a book that's interesting. I know, like I see that woman who wrote, um, you know, that book, they made, they made it into a movie with Julia Roberts. It was about a woman's midlife crisis. Anyway, like, and if you're a great writer, like Anne Lamott, like you can teach a weekend there and people will come from all over the country. And it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It competes with anything. It's this, it's this property that is, it's, it's in the southern uh, tip of Big Sur. It's about, it's miles from town. It might be 10 miles from town. I, I could be wrong, but it's a long way to town to Big Sur. And it's like an hour from Monterey, which is where you have to get real resources. Like if you want to go shopping and get food and stuff like that, you probably have to drive to Monterey. It is rugged and it's a few hundred feet above the Pacific on this cliffside in this very verdant, beautiful land where they grow their own vegetables and they have a swimming pool and people play volleyball and they have a beautiful cafeteria made out of, I think it could be teak or might be redwood. But, you know, and at any particular time, there's five or six workshops going on there. And there's five or six groups of people who are who have traveled from as far away as Europe to take these workshops. And it's like Valhalla 
for, you know, I wouldn't call it new age people because it's not really new agey. It's, it's for people who, uh, are trying to develop something in themselves and, or they've been through something and they're trying to process it, or they're having a midlife crisis, or they're really into studying with a certain meditation teacher or the certain yoga teacher. And it really is like the penultimate place to, if you're teaching something to go. And also it's so beautiful. They have these natural uh, hot tubs there that they've carved out of the side of the mountain. They have natural hot springs. And the way that you get the water into the tubs is you usually, you actually pull this big piece of wood, like a, like a big cork out of the pipe that feeds into the hot tub and it comes right out of the mountain into the hot tub. Um, there's no place like it. And you're sitting in these hot tubs at night or during the day, but it's better at night, hundreds of feet above the rocks below looking out on the Pacific. I mean, there's really no place like it on earth that you can stay, I don't think. And one of the, so as, as, as I tell a story, one of the things about Esalen is there's a lot of nudity at Esalen uh, because people are nude in the tubs. So you get there and if you're not really that comfortable with nudity, like you can always tell when somebody just got got there, whether it's they're work, taking part in some workshop or whether they're just arrived there to work or because they're wearing a bathing suit in the tubs because nobody who's been there for more than three days does. And I know that sounds super weird to a lot of people, but like after three days, it's like this nude cult where everybody's seeing everybody naked all the time. So anybody that you see having, having breakfast or having lunch, whether they're a workshop participant, a teacher, someone who's working there, you're going to run into them naked at some point, which maybe they're going to play volleyball naked. I kind of think that happened, but I don't know if I just say that because it, it sounds far out, but it was super nude. And that was really interesting for two reasons. One because it made you realize that nudity is not sexual. It's so sexualized in the, in the culture that when you think of people being naked, you think of them being sexual because that's how it's portrayed in the culture. But seeing people nude day after day, being nude day after day around people, you realize that it's not sexual. And if you're there, you want to be in the tubs because they're so awesome. And it's so healing and it's so amazing if you're staying there for a while. And I was there for about three months. I would just go there every night. Look at the stars. There's no light pollution. Seeing all the stars in the Milky Way. You know, it, it was just amazing. And after about a day or two, it was just like, yeah, I'm dropping my shorts and going into the tubs. You, you, you wear clothes down to them. Um, and then the other thing about it, though, it's not sexual. Nudity isn't sexual. You know what people look like naked. Uh, before you sort of choose to be involved with them, if you are going to be involved with them sexually, so uh, it g makes you a really it makes you really informed about people. You know a lot about their bodies. <laughs> you know maybe even before you know them, which is pretty interesting. Like before you like, oh, I really like her. Maybe I'll have like a summer fling with her or him or whatever people think. You know what they look like naked which sort of changes dynamics a little bit. It makes things a little bit less mysterious 
and uh, it makes sexuality less mysterious. And, you know, it was pretty far out. And I would say the part of that, I've told this story to friends before that was really the byproduct of it is I went back to college for my senior year <laughs> and I had just spent like three months at Esalen and um, I was at this party. It was like September, October. And someone said, hey, there's a twister here. Let's play naked twister. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. And this was kind of my sense of humor, but I'd also been emboldened by being at Esalen all summer. And so I went into the bathroom and I took off all my clothes, like shoes, underwear, shirts, jeans. And I came out of the bathroom and there was a party with like 50 people in it. And I was like, I was totally naked. And I was like, okay, so who wants to play Naked Twister? <laughs> and I got to say, it cleared out the party, 90% of the people in the party in about two minutes and left a few rather adventurous people <laughs> taking off their clothes. So that is one thing that I got. And I didn't feel ashamed. Like I felt, I was sort of like, you know, I was young and uh, it was, but it was one, it was, I thought it was uh, a terrific joke to play at the party, but then ended up playing Naked Twister, which wasn't even sexual. It was just Twister naked. Anyway, so that's one of the things about Esalen is that there's a lot of nudity there and everybody who stays there for more than, you know, a week or two sees everybody naked. And that is really liberating in a certain way. And, you know, I think that people probably were attracted to other people's bodies uh, and, you know, made decisions according to that. But it was just, it was part of it. So it was a culture upon itself. It was a place where there were different rules than there were anybody anywhere else I've ever been. And I guess that there were parts of it that were cult-like because everybody sort of behaved how they were expected to behave. And I, I feel like I was like that too. Although I tend to be iconoclastic in any situation and not really follow the rules, I think I sort of slid right into it. Okay, so um, there, there's a, a bit of salacious Esalen stories. I mean, and there was a lot of sex going on there. Like it was one of the more sexual places I'd ever been, probably the most. And that was just part of the credo of the place is people being not monogamous was sort of tolerated. It wasn't encouraged, but it was definitely tolerated. And, um, you know, it was still kind of the 60s there. That's how I felt like it, like it was. There were a couple places I've been in my life. Uh, the hate ashbury was like that, and Esalen was like that. But there was something so liberating about being there, like that just totally blew my mind about what my social mores were, and pointed out the things about myself that made me self conscious. And that was really what it was designed to do. It was, it was, it was, it was designed to have you question uh, the social constructs you grew up in, and maybe the morality that you grew up in. And when you were there, none of that stuff seemed real. And it wasn't supposed to, and I'm sure parts of it are still like that, but it was real when I left. <laughs> it was real at that party at Syracuse. They, everyone thought that was a pretty weird thing to do. And I knew it would be weird, but I thought it would be funny and kind of shocking, and it was. Okay, so one of the things that was super 
super interesting about it is they have a system there and they will invite you to come and live and work there for a few months. They have month-long programs, two-month-long programs, three-month-long programs, where you become a member, basically, of the Esalen staff on a kind of tryout basis. So they call it a work-study program. And while you're there, you can you work probably like three days a week, and the rest of your time is your own. And for each month, there's some workshop that you can take at night with a group of people. I think the whole time I was there, I was taking a massage, Esalen massage workshop, because I just thought that was pretty, that was going to be a great thing to leave there with. And it was, it's a great thing to learn um, and be around. And when I got there, when I got there, I was sent to a, uh, like a cabin, like a big sort of social environment and that everybody who was new went to this place to get oriented and to find out what they were going to do there and how it worked and all that sort of stuff. And there was a guy standing there and he was obviously in charge of the whole thing because he had a clipboard and he was meeting people and telling them stuff. And he came up to me uh, and he looked at me and he said, you're a ball player. And I went, yeah, yeah, I play a little baseball, a little football growing up. And he goes, no, 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 you're a ball player. We don't get a lot of guys like you here. Um, so we're going to take special care of you. And you're going to work as a duck in the kitchen. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, sure. And he, and he introduced himself and his name was Danny B. That was his name. And he had been there for a long time and... Besides running the property uh, and being the coach of the Esalen softball team, which played in a summer softball league against the other, uh, mostly hotels in Big Sur. And they played against the other staff of the other businesses in, in Big Sur. And most of those other staff uh, were like Vietnam vets who were living wild in the hills of Big Sur, (laughs) like camping there, basically with PTSD. And they worked in the other hotels doing manual labor. And then everybody played in this softball league. And Danny B, who was was running Esalen at at that time, was also, he had been like a tank commander in the army or something like that and had had some kind of insight on a psychedelic experience and dropped out of the army and then he had found himself at Esalen with a lot of authority there so besides telling me I, I was uh, his, his I had the strange interaction with him where I walked in and he told me I was a ball player and it was true I played baseball and football at a very high level growing up uh, he was also this kind of like renowned psychic <laughs> which sounds kind of funny but he would, people would come from San Francisco and LA to have sessions with him. And he would put a, a blanket over his head, you know, kind of creating like a, he didn't cover his face. He just covered his head with it. Like, and made it like, a, you know, like kind of, he looked like Jesus when he did it. I think I saw him do it once. I think he did it for me. I don't remember what he said. But people came from all over to have these sessions with him and he'd light a candle and then he'd talk to them about themselves and people loved it. Like people loved it. He had like a, he had like a years long waiting list. And um, so he told me I was a ball player. 
He told me I was going to work in the kitchen because that's where he was going to take care of me because I wouldn't get tired there. He wanted me to wash dishes because that was one of the jobs. And then he told me I was going to, you know, play center field there. And I kind of think when he told me that, he said for years. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, whatever. I guess so. Yeah, I'll play in your softball league. That'll be fun. And I really hadn't played any baseball at all since I was probably 16. Uh, so, uh, he, he, he assigned me working in the kitchen and what I was doing there was I was washing dishes and there were always like 200 people eating, eating at Esalen. There were always all these workshop people, all the people who worked there, all the people who, uh, were teaching there, like all meals had a lot of people at them. And they would just, you just were in the station and they just keep putting their dishes into the station and they had a washing machine and you had to rinse the dishes and put them in the washing machine and put the washing machine down and then stack them. It was like really challenging manual labor because it went really fast, but it was not fine labor. It just required a lot of energy, which at the time I was about 21, like I said, and I had it. So I thought I was pretty good at it. Uh, there were several people in the kitchen who were chefs who didn't think I was so good at it. And in the kitchen at Esalen, the people who cooked for the, you know, Esalen's known for its food. It has these beautiful organic gardens. And the expectation, because it's expensive, is that the food is kind of resort quality. So they always had these chefs there who were really skilled and they could really cook like really sophisticated meals, except they were all batshit crazy. And when I say batshit crazy, I mean they could all really cook at a professional, at a high professional level. And the way they'd ended up cooking at Esalen was probably their therapist. Uh, because they were so batshit, crazy, type A, screamy and yelly kind of guys. Like eventually, like their therapist said, you're either going to get cancer or you're going to have a heart attack or somebody's going to kill you. Cooking, like being a chef. So you're going to have to go to Esalen and learn how to cook without doing that. And there were guys there who had like Michelin stars and Michelin Michelin stars and like uh, a restaurant in Aspen and they were cooking there <laughs> and they were so contemptuous of the uh, one of them in particular was this amazing chef who had his own restaurant in Aspen but he was so uptight that like his therapist said you either have to close your restaurant or you have to go learn how to cook at Esalen like not screaming at people, not yelling, not having um, rage episodes and stuff like that. And what he basically did was he went to Esalen and he just yelled and screamed and had rage episodes and um, made people cry who were working in the kitchen because they weren't professionals. And I remember him this one time coming in <laughs> for breakfast and somebody had made a... Um, They'd made a, a, like a vat of oatmeal, you know, like five gallons of oatmeal or something like that, maybe more. 
and he tasted it and I was watching him because I didn't have anything to do in the kitchen. And he, when he tasted it, he made this face and his face went from disgust to rage. And he just literally stood in the middle of the kitchen and he screamed, who fucking made this oatmeal? And, uh, Thankfully, I hadn't, but the woman who had kind of went, I, 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 I did. And he started screaming like, what the fuck did I tell you? This is, taste this. Can you taste every individual oat in this oatmeal? Because you're supposed to be able to. I would rather eat dog shit than eat this. And then he took the whole thing and he turned it over and poured it into the sink and she started crying. And then he tried to tend to her and everybody tried to tend to her. And there was just stuff going on like that every day. And it wasn't just with him, but all the chefs were crazy. And like they all just were about to snap and kill somebody. And, you know, I was a big, strong guy. So they didn't bother me and I didn't worry about them. And, you know, I didn't think they'd ever scream at me. And one of the things they did at Esalen was they had... um, they, they, with the people who worked in your group, like if you're working in the kitchen or you're working in the garden or you turned over the cabins or you were on the, you know, working at the front gate, once a week they had um, a therapy, group therapy with the people who, uh, who you worked with. Because their thing was, was they didn't want you to have like bad feelings about the people you were work, working with, unprocessed feelings. Because they thought it would affect your work and it would affect the quality of what you work. So one, once a week, you'd meet in a group therapy with everyone who is in your group. So if people had issues, uh, they'd work them out in the group and not while they were working and not like make the food have bad vibes or, you know, <laughs> have people resentful of doing their work. And I, I thought it's actually sort of a funny idea. Anyway, so I was like, nobody could ever be bothered by me because my whole thing when I worked was I was like the John Bonham, who's the thunderous drummer of Led Zeppelin, has the most chi in rock and roll history. Like I wasn't neat with my job, but I had a lot of chi. And at the end of the day, everything was going to be stacked. Everything was going to be clean. Everything was going to um, was going to be dry. And it was going to be just like everybody else's station who worked there. And the other two guys who worked as as dishwashers when I was there were both German. So they were completely meticulous and everything was neat the whole way through. And my thing was like, everything would end up neat at the end and you wouldn't be able to tell who'd been there. But during the process, you could tell the difference because I was turning up the stereo and doing like uh, drum solos with chopsticks along to my work because it was sort of tedious and boring. But anyway, I thought I was entertaining people. I thought people, like, I was, I was adding some spirit to the kitchen. And one day I went into, I went into um, the group therapy. And, like, no one ever talked to me because I thought, like, why would anyone talk to me? I don't, I'm like, I'm, I got, I'm Mr. Good Vibes in the, uh, in the, in the, in the kitchen. And one guy stepped forward. Here's this guy, and he stepped forward, and he was bald, and he had a beard, and he was small and wiry, and he was a cook. And I was like, "Ooh, somebody's gonna get it. I can see he's about to snap. We might have to, we might have to restrain him. I could see his his veins were snapping, were were bulging in his forehead. It was like uh, scanners. Remember that horror movie? If you're old enough, right before your head blew up, heart. 
Um, and he gritted his teeth. He says, I got something to say. And I was like, and everyone's like, okay, it's okay. You can say it here. We're all supporting it. And he goes, Robert. <laughs> he said like that. He gritted his teeth and goes, Robert. And I go, oh, wow. Okay. And, and he goes, and, he, and like everything he said, he said with gritted teeth, like his teeth were cracking and like he was about to run at me and he was like 20 feet away. And I thought it was sort of funny. He was a little wiry guy. I wasn't afraid of him, but I, I, I had rarely seen somebody get this angry. It was really like he had smoke coming out of his ears and he looked at me and he goes, Robert, what? I'm not going to do it as loud as he did it because it'll be unpleasant. But he basically said, why the fuck is this all a one big fucking game to you, man? The fuck's the matter with you? Every people are in here working. This isn't a place to have fun. We're feeding 200 people and you're over there and you're having fun and you're playing drum sticks like they're like, like you're playing the drums and you're making a mess and you're loud and you're laughing and you're making all this noise. This is like, this is serious work, man. And I was like, and I kind of looked at him and they go, Robert, you got anything to say? And I was like, sorry. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not really sorry, but you know, I'm sorry that it's upsetting to you. And, uh, people kind of laughed and giggled cause I didn't really know what to do. And, and, and I thought like, and he just exploded. He started screaming at me like you fucker, you motherfucker, you fuck you, fuck you. You know, it was really funny. It was like, it was like a seventies group therapy comedy. And he just kept screaming at me and glaring at me the whole time. And, uh, and, and, and then at the end of it, he goes, you got anything to say? And I was like, uh, no. And he's like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? And I was like, who are you? I didn't even know. I didn't even know you were getting upset. I didn't know who he was. I, I actually didn't know what his name was, but he had been pretty sure that my behavior was designed to make him super upset. And he started screaming at me again and again and again and again. And I didn't laugh because I didn't want to... I didn't want to antagonize him, but he just kept going for like 20 minutes. And I was sure he was going to have a stroke. And then when he was done, the guy who was facilitating, he goes, Robert, do you have anything you want to say? And I was like, no, I'm sorry. He's so upset. And the facilitator was like, now look at Robert. He might be the healthiest person here. Derek, let's say his name is Derek. I don't remember what his name was. Just, just threw a whole bunch of shit at him and he didn't eat any of it. And he realized it was just Derek shit. And he wasn't scared and he didn't have to make Derek feel better. And he just really let Derek express himself. And, and it was so funny. And like, whenever I'd see that guy afterwards, he'd glare at me. Like, like I, I actually, was. he was a little paranoid besides being like a rageaholic. And I'd never seen a rageaholic before, but he would, he just screamed until he couldn't scream anymore. It was really wild. And so there was just stuff like that going on all the time. And then there was the softball. And so basically I decided that, yeah, sure, I'll play softball twice a week in the evenings. It'll be fun. And I went there the first day and they were doing batting practice. And I went and I hit a few balls and I could see that I was a lot more athletic than anybody else that was playing on their softball team. And the guy, Danny B, who he coached the soccer, the, the, the softball team, he literally came to me after, after batting practice and he said, you're like the natural 
And I was like, oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I played a lot of baseball. So he's like, no, no, no. We've never had anybody here like you. And I was like, oh, thanks. And he goes, and he goes we could win the Big Sur Championship for the first time with you here. And I've been on the Big Sur, on the Esalen softball team for 20 years. And you give us hope. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I played and I played center field. And I, I definitely hit a few home runs and won some games. And I started to get better and better slots uh, for my kitchen duty. Like he basically said, what days do you want to work? You know, like what days do you want to work? Like, do you want to work on the weekends? Do you not want to work on the weekends? <laughs> and he started giving me this total preferential treatment, which was so funny because this was this place of consciousness. And like, I was really getting treated like a VIP because I was the best softball player they'd have there in a while. And um, one of the things that was so funny was the chef from Aspen who drove a 911, which was so funny. One day he gave me a ride back and, and uh, the, the softball was in Jules Pfeiffer State Park. So it was a few miles from Esalen. And, you know, you had to drive there and back. I don't think I had a car. I think I got dropped off there. So he gave me a ride back from the, uh, he gave me a ride back from the state park where we were playing softball to Esalen and like sort of like halfway through the ride, which was only like 10, 15 minutes. He goes, you are so lucky. And I said, what? He goes, the way you play softball, you could stay here forever. <laughs> and one of the things that they used the work study programs for was this feeder system where basically I thought about 75% of the people in the work study program were kind of nuts in some way. Like in some way they were crazy. And if you've ever seen What About Bob, which is this really funny, uh, it's this really funny comedy with Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss about a crazy guy who like falls in with this therapist, then follows him on vacation. It's like an eighties movie, but I think that Bill Murray is the crazy guy and Richard Dreyfuss is the therapist. And there's a certain point where after he has a couple sessions with him, and then he follows him on a summer vacation. He just looks at him and he goes, I haven't felt this good since Esalen. <laughs> and to me, there were a lot of people like that there. There were a lot of people like that were living there uh, who might, if they weren't living there, be in mental hospitals or like on psychiatric drugs. But because they were there and there was such a big container, they could live there and be happy and kind of thrive. But I really think that what the uh, work-study programs were about was they, they, they recruited people who were sane to work there. Like they knew that like 80% of the people coming through in those programs were not going to be too functional, but that a few here and there could be cherry-picked and then they could live there. So what they do is they'd live there. You wouldn't have to pay to live there. They'd pay you a stipend you know, which would be a few hundred dollars a month. But if you stayed there for years, that really added up. And then you didn't have to pay for food. You didn't have to pay for lodging. And you could take any workshop that you wanted to take. So it was really, really attractive. So um, uh, the, the chef was going, you could stay here forever. He goes, I wish I could play baseball like you. I wish I could play softball like you. And I was like, oh my God, you're like a Michelin star chef. You could live here if you wanted, you know, like... You could, they'd love to have you here. You make the best meals. You make this place like, you know, next level food wise. And he was like, no, they're always going to be able to find really great, crazy chefs to cook here. 
I'm not as special. Your, your, your softball is special. And um, he was right because at a certain point, the Danny B guy, he came to me. I think he said, come to my office or come to my cabin. I want to talk to you. I don't know. I don't remember how far into the softball season it was. And then the other thing about the softball was Danny B, who was this uh, psychic that people traveled uh, across oceans to see so he could talk to them with his shroud of Turin on or whatever shroud was. He went crazy during the softball games and yelled and screamed at everybody like he was 10 years old. Like if they made errors, he screamed at them. What the fuck are we doing? Let's get our heads out of our asses. Let's get focused. Come on. And then like when they came back after the inning, he'd be like, come on, whatever. You can do better than that. Focus. Get your focus. And he'd get really mad. He'd get super mad. Like he'd throw his glove and and he'd scream and he'd cry. And I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) I've never done that. I didn't do that when I was eight, but he's doing it now and he's like 48. And I just thought it was super funny. And he never did it to me. Um, so I didn't really care that much. I just thought a lot, it was entertaining. Like I thought a lot of Esalen was entertaining. Um, so uh, he invited me into his cabin or office. I don't recall what it was. And he was just like, look, you've got a gift. And I was like, I do? And he's like, yeah. He goes, he goes you could be our Mickey Mantle. You could play center field here for 20 years and we'd win several championships. We may not win it every year, but we'd be able to count on you for home runs, for your speed and your great glove. And he goes, and you could have anything you want. And I was like, anything I want? What do you mean? He goes, well, there's a cabin in the creek. And if you wanted to live there by yourself, you could. I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. And you could have any job you wanted. And I was like, any job, like anything? And he goes, yeah. He goes like, what would you like to do? I said, I don't know. Like, what are you thinking about? Like anything? He goes, well, you could live here and take the van twice a week to Monterey and fill it with groceries from a grocery store and come back here. And that would be your work. Like four hours of driving a week. And that's all you'd have to do. And the rest of your time would be your own. You'd have this creek, you'd have this cabin creek, creek cabin. And, you know, you just play, you just play softball for us. And I'm sure you would find, they'd find other things for you here. Like basically you could stay here forever. And I was like, oh, wow, that is that. I really had to think about it because it was like, it was like paradise in a certain way. You know, my days were spent eating amazing food and meditating and in the tubs and playing softball and, you know, sleeping like you've never slept before because there's no noise and taking runs up, up on the rocks, up on the ground by PCH. And I was never fitter or stronger or healthier or more relaxed. And then I'd look around and I'd see like some guy who had said yes to what he was asking me if I wanted to be part of and that guy would have like three kids with three different women and have like really long hair and a beard and like all the women hated him. <laughs> and the thing that saved me from that, cause I really think like I could still be there. Like part of me could still be there. And I guess part of me still is with the work I'm doing. Uh, I really thought that I had another year of college to do and I really wanted to finish college 
And I thought I wanted to go to graduate school. And I thought like, if I stay here, I am never going to leave. And like, I won't ever leave. Like, there's no reason to leave. There's no reason to go back into the world where there's all this conflict and people in their clothes all the time and inorganic food. And there were just this constant flow of attractive women up from LA and down from San Francisco who were looking to have like flings with like Esalen hippie guys and like divorcees. And it, it all looked pretty fun. But I just realized that there was no gravitas to it and that I could get stuck there. Like it was like this eddy in this river and I could just get stuck in this eddy forever. Uh, so I said, no. I said, you know, that's awesome. I'd, I'd love to come back another time, but um, but I want to finish college and I want to go to graduate school and I just can't stay here. And the people who stayed there, even if they didn't have, even if they were just, you know, appealing people, they stayed for five or six years, you know, and they would leave there with a pile of money and having done a million workshops and you know, eating like, and a lot of people went there like after they had cancer or after they had a nervous breakdown or, you know, they really had to figure out a way to make themselves healthy and they would do that. And I think maybe I just didn't feel, uh, maybe damaged enough to need to do that. But a lot of people did. And there were a lot of people there who were really successful. Like they'd been big record company executives or they'd been doctors or they'd been, uh, they'd been, uh, what else had people been? They'd been like financiers and they were just so miserable that it was like Esalen was the last stop before they killed themselves. Um, and I just didn't feel like that. I was just a little happier than that, I guess. And I, I was a little more ambitious than that. Um, but sometimes I think about what would it have been like to stay, <laughs> Like it would have been great to stay. I'd probably, maybe I'd be running it now. Maybe I'd have Danny B's job. Maybe I'd have another job, but um, it was good. It was good that I left. And then the other thing, you know, the last thing about it that was really funny was the workshop leaders. Because I saw a lot of workshop leaders who were like world renowned in their field who really being at Esalen was about like being naked in the tubs with their admirers who mostly were female. If they were, the women weren't like this at all. The women had a uh, authenticity. The women who were women teachers, they weren't doing this, but the men were where it was really a lot about being in the tubs naked with female admirers, like kind of spread Eagle at the end of the tub talking to everybody. And like, I remember Terrence McKenna was like that. And he's a bit like wearing a Cheshire cat grin. You know, like everybody talks about Terrence McKenna in the world of psychedelics. But to me, he was just like, he was like a child. And he just really wanted to uh, show his penis to everybody. I know it's a mean thing to say in the psychedelic world, but I was around. I saw it. Um, and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of consciousness about that. Um, and there was just a lot of that going on. You know, it like it like most places... It has a shadow and it shines brightly, you know, and I thought that it was a place that was remarkable. The actual location of it is one of the most remarkable places in the world. 
And the things that went on there were pretty wild. I don't think that there's another place like it. It was almost like, I saw that movie about the Rajneeshis this past year. And it was kind of like that. It was like a reality within a reality that you could really learn things in that you couldn't learn any other place. But I don't actually know uh, how relevant it was in the world, but I will also say this. Almost every bit of consciousness, technology that's in the world, in the Western world, was at Esalen first. Like Esalen is the place it came out in the West, whether that's meditation or yoga or people working with psychedelics or people working with uh, breathing exercises. People lived there who were brilliant, like Stan Groff, who is a visionary. There were always visionary people there. And somehow them being there made their work radiate out into the world. It's like people came and studied with them. And then they went out into the world seated with what they had taught them. So that was all super real. Uh, if anybody is interested uh, in reading more about Esalen, it's called, there's a book called Esalen, I think the religion of no religion. And it really is about how this kind of Gnostic, uh, non-traditional mystery religion has been in the West basically ever since Esalen opened and that Esalen is the place that it came from. So I think that, you know, it was a very complicated place, a very complex place. I think now that coronavirus is over, you can take workshops up there. And I think it's a great thing to do. Super fun if you haven't done it. And, you know, if you've done it, you know, it's fun being there. And you can do things that are transformative and profound, but also it's a different kind of place, you know, and it, and it has different rules and it has a shadow and it's super fun and super unusual and really different. And one of the most unusual and remarkable places I've ever been. And it's a place that kind of exists outside of American culture, meaning you could be in Greece, you know, in the mystery schools, you could be, um, you know, you could be anywhere, you know, you could be in Spain. You could be, you could be um, in Norway. It's not like it's in the United States. And that was what was awesome about it. It was a place and is a place that exists outside of culture and outside of time. And that was the wildest thing about it. Anyway, so this is a podcast. It's not costing me anything intellectually. <laughs> I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I'm just trying to be a raconteur and entertain people because I think that uh, that's a fun thing to do. And somebody told me I was a good storyteller. And um, I have a lot of stories to tell. So uh, if you want to see the work that I've, I've done, it's at www.goingquantum.org. And, you know, there's other podcasts here that are fun. Um, and I will look forward to talking to you guys when I talk to you guys. And this is Robert Mitchell at High Tide in the Dreamtime. I hope you enjoyed this. It was fun for me. It was fun telling these stories. I once wrote a screenplay about this, these things and it never got made. So I never, so I'm left with just the stories, which I'm super happy about. All right, you guys be well, stay healthy. 
Stay happy. Enjoy the post-coronavirus reality I am. And I'll talk to you when I talk to you. Bye.